everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Adventures in Machine Learning. This week on our panel, we have Ben Wilson. Hello. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. Sorry for my scratchy voice. I just got back from camping and I breathed in a whole bunch of stuff. It makes me sneeze and worse. We also have a special guest this week, and that's Sandeep. Sandeep, do you want to introduce yourself? Let everybody know who you are and why you're famous. Hey, everyone. Excited to be here. So I'm, I'm Sandeep Uttam Chandani. I'm the Chief Data Officer and VP of Engineering at Unravel Data. This is a startup in the AI space, focusing on really simplifying management of modern data platforms. In terms of my background, I've been around the block more more than I would like to acknowledge, but really uh, in the data plus AI space for, for close to 20 years, done lots and lots of different products. Got my PhD from uh, University of Illinois. This was in AI expert systems. And really over the years, I've focused on how to make data plus AI real in the sense, how do you really get business value? How do you derive the the kind of value that we aspire and, and you know make these technologies real? So what I really sort of like to define myself as someone who is a practitioner, really loves building at the same time, really has uh, the business focus in how do you translate this into products and platforms, which is really what I've uh, done throughout my career. Nice. I remember working my tail off to become a senior developer. I read every book I could get my hands on. I went to any conference I could and watched the videos about the things that I thought I needed to learn. And eventually, I got that senior developer job. And then I realized that the rest of my career looked just like where I was now. I mean, where was the rush I got from learning? What was I supposed to do to keep growing? And then I found it. I got the chance to mentor some developers. I started a podcast and helped many more developers. I did screencasts and helped even more developers. I kind of became a dev hero. And now I want to help you become one too. And if you're looking forward to something more than doing the same thing at a different job three years from now, then join the Dev Heroes Accelerator. I'll walk you through the process of building and growing a following and finding people that you can uniquely help as you build the next stage of your career. You can learn more at devheroesaccelerator.com. We brought you on to talk about this article that you wrote. Of course, my uh, browser somehow hit the back button for itself, which doesn't help, but it was the nine deadly sins of machine learning data set selection. And somebody we know keeps hammering home that the data set is kind of the key to the whole thing. Right, Ben? Uh, that's a slight understatement. That, <laughs> and of course, how, how Sandeep introduced himself with uh, that business focus as well. of Saying like, hey, you need to solve a problem, but the data is how you solve it. Yeah. So I'm I'm wondering, you know, as we dive into this, yeah, how how do we get how do we get it wrong? Like, what what are some of the things that we mess up, and how easy is it to do these things? Yeah, so like, you know, if I if I take a moment here, let's sort of put this in perspective, right? And that way, hopefully, the listeners get the full context. So when you think about the think about any project out there in the data plus AI space, right? Essentially, it has a collection of phases, right? You start from, and, and there are a few of these. I'll, I'll just quickly list them out. So you, you you always start from the problem definition phase, right? Once you have the clarity on the problem definition, you then you get into data set selection. Do I even have the right data to solve this problem, right? After that, you get into 
you know, what's called data preparation, right? You may have the right data, but how do you sort of get it in a form that you can actually apply in the context of features for your machine learning? Followed by that, you get into model design. Again, model design, a lot of things can go wrong, especially with feature engineering. And deep learning is not always the answer. I can, I can tell you that. Then you get into training and then you really get into how do you operationalize? So these are all the different phases and you know, in the end-to-end life cycle, if you think of it, each phase uh, is really important for a successful outcome. I, I can we, we can pretty much talk through each of these, which play a very important role from, from creating impact. Now, within this context, uh, obviously, the data set selection, which is more or less the second phase, is, you know, what I was emphasizing there. And, and when you think about data set selection, Man, it's the wild, wild west, right? Um, this is this is where the aspirations and realities could be quite different. Now, you know, one of the classic mistakes I've seen early on, you know, in project definition is that you assume that you have a lot of data, and a lot of data, a lot of data in quotes, right, means of course we can build a machine learning model. Of course we can extract insights from this data. Now, this is one of those topics where like having having a lot of data may not always translate into the data being useful, the data really being the right distribution that you're trying to model. And oftentimes the data might be missing attributes or what I refer to as like, you know, can you model reality, right? So if there are important attributes which are never collected, because most of the times this data was collected for a reason and that specific team did not quite have the context of someone trying to build a model and trying to do a prediction. So going back, when you think of data, it starts all the way, data set selection starts all the way from you know, quality, which is like a headline today and a lot of awareness today. But more importantly, why the context of the data? Why was it collected? What do the attributes mean? What, how reliable are the pipelines that are bringing in the data? Uh, and then because a flaky pipeline essentially will, will eventually impact the, when the model is operationalized and goes live. So lots of, lots of pieces when it comes to like, you know, specifically data set selection and things that can go wrong in that space. Yeah, from a model application standpoint, I've long ago since lost track of how many times I've worked with the team and they're trying to solve a problem. And they're like, hey, we have 5,000 features that we collect about this primary key of information. And it's like, yeah, that's great. Cool. What are you doing with it? I'm like, well, we throw it into a random forest or a GBT or XGBoost. It's like, okay, have you done your EDA and figured out what the correlation is between each of these features and your target? And some teams will respond, yes, they're the minority. Other ones are like, can you show us how to do that? And the reason we go through that exercise is to show, do you have the predictive capability or the capacity to solve this problem that you're trying to solve? And sometimes that means, hey, you, you don't. Like you, There is not enough signal here to actually build a, a relevant model. And the answer is, let's go talk to the software developers. Let's go talk to Charles and his team, the front-end developers, and say, Hey, can you collect these seven things, this like seven data points from your API, because we think that'll be useful. And then you take that data, throw it into your model, do a quick validation, and you see that on that holdout data, you've just increased the predictive capabilities of this by over 100% or more, because that latent variable that you weren't originally 
collecting that is that reflection of reality is now part of that training set. So that resonates with me when you said that. Yep, this is this is so common. Yeah, and, and one of the things really is even if you look at outliers, like you know, topics which require understanding the data itself. So firstly, if you look at over the last 15, 20 years, right, with the big data evolution that has happened, what has basically sort of happened also is we went from you know what you refer to as schema on write to schema on read, right? So schema on write essentially was in the good old data warehousing days, right? Where when data was aggregated, at the time of aggregating that in the warehouse, you had to define what does this data mean, right? What is What are these attributes? Because you were sort of creating a tabular representation within the warehouse. Now, obviously, fast forward in the big data world, it is schema on read, which is dump whatever you want within the lake, right? And it's only at the time of reading that you really realize that Gosh, this is you know th- these these attributes are either junk or really useful or we missed some of these other aspects. And and schema on read uh, really is the number one reason why th- there's also a lot of uh, duplication. Right, firsthand experience is lack of standardization. Right, in some of the you know some of my previous life projects. Right, Sing- simple matrix. Right, what's the count of new customers? Like just take a very simple metric. What defines a new customer, right? This metric will essentially have at least four to five business definitions, right? Sales will have a different definition. Marketing will consider it separately. Let's say I am an existing customer and buy another product from you. Like you have multiple products, right? Do I count as a new customer? Would you count me as a new customer? Or like, you know, I'm an existing customer. I'm just, you're just upselling the the products, different departments counted differently. Sales would count it as a new customer. Marketing would, you know, count it differently. So, simple examples like billing date, right? Because that's where you realize what, uh, like, from a monthly MRR standpoint. Uh, now, what is the billing date? Is the date when the credit card is billed? Is it the date where? The money is actually received. If it's a debit card versus credit card, how do you how do you manage these? So if you if you really start fine tuning, right? Especially schema on read, no one tends to be responsible for the data because it's in the lake. And when you finally try to read it, these nuances are the ones that really trip pretty much any project out there because you'll have five duplicates of it, five definitions. Which one should I use in my model? What am I predicting? Is that prediction like and, and prediction obviously has is working towards some impact? It could be maybe customer churn, it could be revenue forecasting. So very quickly, this cross product of all the different permutations gets gets out of hand, so to speak. It almost sounded like you were giving a product pitch for my own company's product, <laughs> Delta and Feature Store. Like what you just explained is the exact reason why. We built those two things at Databricks. And yeah, it is a pain point. And I can confirm after talking to well over a thousand customers of varying sizes that everybody suffers through this problem in data lakes. And it creates no no shortage of just waste and sort of time churn for a data science team, particularly if they're siloed off. Like, what is the source of truth? You have no idea what can be trusted. And you brought up like sales and revenue 
it is amazing at companies that are, I'd say, more than two years old. Usually your first two years, everybody kind of knows what revenue means. But you get to a company that's been around for 30, 40, 50 years, every single department that deals with sales has a different definition of the equation involved in saying, what is our profit? And if you don't have a single source of truth and people are just dumping data to a data lake, it's now a data swamp. And which one do you (laughs) use? Yeah, it's a real problem. Companies waste globally tens of millions of dollars a week across the industry, by my estimation, on just not having standards because it's it's a hard problem to solve. I want to see the wildlife in that data swamp. No, you don't. Trust me. It's such a common problem, uh, by the way, since I pitched for you, I'll, I'll wait for the check in the mailbox. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and, and one way to think about and what you said is, you know, really a very important point, which is companies are in different phases of maturity, right? And also they radically differ with what data means to them, right? I have a very simplistic way to sort of categorize companies into two buckets, right? Either you have a large number of small tables or you have a small number of large tables. So if you if you look at sort of the web 2.0 companies, right, or the newer generation companies, they essentially translate into having a handful of tables, so small number of really large tables, tables which are capturing information, which is I would say multiple columns, but you have a very well-defined structure in terms of aggregating and like I would say making sense of the information, right? Because end of the day, data in tables or any form is all about what information can I can I gather. Whereas companies which have been around for a while in the 15, 20, 30, more of the brownfield, right? Rather than the greenfield deployments, the brownfield deployments, they tend to have a, a, a large number of small tables. And this is where the, the mess starts because across these tables, you will have repeated attributes, repeated columns. And honestly, after a while, like, you know, determining, should I be using the column value from here? And some of the, some of the whole different aspect is documentation. If you try to read some of the column names and try to make sense of it, it's, uh, you know, I have some funny examples that I'll keep it for a different day. But this is, this is one of those aspects where right off the bat, the amount of time spent is just enormous, making sense and then saying, okay, I saw like, you know, date, uh, sales date over here and the seven other tables. What do I join with? So, so small number of large tables uh, tends to be a common pattern that really starts aggravating the, these issues even further. And when you choose the wrong raw data to do feature engineering and generate that factor that's going to go into an algorithm, I've personally seen that sometimes caught really early because people are doing QA with the business unit saying, hey, are we using the right data here? Is this like what you want to see? Because they're focused on solving that problem. That's everybody's myopic on the big picture, sort of saying, we just need to solve the problem that the business is asking us to solve. We're not focusing on the algorithm and the tech and stuff. So sometimes that's caught early, but for the people that are that I noticed that focus on the fancy, shiny things in, in data science and AI, they're, they're trying to use the TensorFlow hammer for every nail and screw that comes along, and they just want to use tech. They're not focused on that data. They're not focused on the problem. It's really bad when you find out at the 11th hour that you just used the wrong data or illogical data because you joined 
17 tables incorrectly. How frequently do you, do you see that as a problem? Like, how did that inform some of the stuff that I've read of yours online, where you actually mentioned this pretty frequently? You know, the TensorFlow hammer is oh. kind of fun to wield, though, I'll just tell you. It's in fact, it starts, it sort of you know, brings up this whole different topic, right? Which is when I look at these problems, it's actually a combination of people, process, technology, right? We oftentimes focus on tools that, assuming that, okay, this is a silver bullet, somehow this will magically address all the issues that, that exist. But but it's really a combination, right? In fact, I'll, I'll tee it up in a, in a form here. When you think about, so let's start with the aspect of, like before we go to technology or tools, let's talk about the process and people, right? So when it comes to like, you know, the consumers, that is the people, right? There's a whole spectrum here, right? And especially as I focus a lot of time also in building teams, how do you recruit? How do you analyze talent that is out there? And honestly, the term data scientist or these days, AI engineer, you know, these are, it's like, <laughs> it's, it, it is, there's no, I, I think we need a standardization in the definition here itself, right? Um, I agree. I agree a hundred percent. It is a loaded hey, I term. I claim all of the above. <laughs> yeah. It's just this umbrella term for actually 15 different specialities that is involved in executing, solving a, a problem with machine learning. Yeah, I, I agree. Precisely. That's just how efficient I am. <laughs> you're the unicorn. So, Char, right. exactly. You're, you're, you're the true unicorn uh, out there. Didn't because... already know that. <laughs> anyway, because go ahead. If you look at the resumes out there, right? Every resume portrays to be a unicorn. I think that's a start with uh, start with that, right? And when you start sort of going through the specifics, right? The thing I try to do is really try to try to place where does this person best fit in the journey map right and and what i see what i mean by the best fit is what are their signature strengths right and a big chunk of what data scientists resumes and again there's a there's a variation in terms of experience you know entry level mid senior so just taking broad strokes here right you know oftentimes a big chunk of resumes or the eventual realization of the signature strengths or especially like, you know, folks who are, you know, in the data scientist space is more, I would say, in the models and algorithms in the sense that the overall journey, because the key aspect really is models and algorithms are a means towards the end, right? And the end here is how do you generate the impact? And impact here starts by the very first building block. Do, we, do I understand the problem? Right. So simple aspects, which is what's the right level of accuracy that this model has to accomplish? Right? How do you measure that? Right. Obviously, recall and precision is a function of use. Right. You need the product thinking there. You cannot hypothesize like the, the right values. Again, it's like if you're predicting uh, spam versus you're predicting patients with you know, heart disease. Um, these values will will have very different implications, so to speak. So fast forward from there, uh, all the way to those fundamentals, to then getting into the guts of data, right? Data is a skill. Data definitely requires a, a deeper understanding. And, and obviously, then you get into machine learning models. There's always a bias, especially in junior talents, to leverage, get into more of complicated models, what I refer to as 
you know, you're compromising interpretability too soon in the journey, right? Interpretability versus performance. Yes, we have to, uh, you know, build the most accurate model. But the most important thing initially is to learn as much as we can. And this is where the most simpler the model, the better, because that's where, you know, oftentimes you realize you can take a bunch of attributes, model all day long and get nowhere because those attributes are not representing reality, right? Some of these like aspects which you're trying to model, if I'm trying to be model customer behavior, right? Maybe there are aspects of behavioral uh, data collection. I haven't built in enough beacons uh, in my uh, in my product yet. So if I just play around with the existing data set, I'll, I'll never be ever able to build a model uh, of any kind of accuracy or anything. I, I can always like overfit and get away and then realize when it's deployed that this, this model was complete BS, so to speak. But coming coming back, when we think about all the aspects of people process technology, right? So first is the people element, knowing who the data scientist is. Uh, and what I mean here is, is data their signature strength? Uh, because if not, um, that's right off, the, right off the bat. You need to complement and make sure there is someone on the team with that signature strength, right? Yep. And again, and even in terms of traits, right? There's a whole bunch of traits when it comes to dealing with data. <laughs> data requires a whole bunch of patience. Patience in terms of context, understanding, really owning it. Um, but, and once you actually have those investments, they pay out well. Every data set should have an owner. If not, start right there because what you feed in your model is what comes out on the other side. So garbage in, garbage out, right? So simple, simple physics applied here. The second yeah, that, that actually reminds me of like that topic of the specialization that really reminds me of a conversation I had earlier this week with a customer where it was a sort of a DevOps group that was coming to, to ask me like, hey, we support you know, like 10 different data science groups in the company. And I was like, oh, that's cool. You know, you have so many data scientists working there and solving these problems. They're like, yeah, production's really hard though for like a CICD that we need to do. Okay, how are you doing it right now? Like, well, they send over a notebook and then we have to figure out how to convert that into actual code. And I was like, that's not CICD. That's that's uh, manual deployment and manual development. But okay. And they're like, well, what should we do here? Like, what tools does Databricks offer? Like, what what can we do with your platform to solve this? I'm like, nothing. This is not a tool problem. This is a, please go hire a developer per team to work with these these folks and teach them how to write correct code like teach them basic functional programming paradigms teach them how to do how to use git properly and then you can talk about the tooling of CICD and their response to me at first was was sort of disbelief they're saying well we're never going to find somebody that has that that talent or we won't be able to afford them of a you know data scientist that is also an ML engineer and also has data engineering background. Like I agree, you're not going to be able to afford those people. Uh, I know how much we get paid, and yeah, you you don't have the budget for that, so you don't need to do that. Get a software engineer and, and embed them in the team, and they'll both teach each other. So so true, um, Ben. I couldn't agree more. In fact, uh, um, you know, I had this uh, article in in Venture Beat. In um, you know, how do you build unicorn AI team without the unicorns, 
right? And the <laughs> whole and the whole approach really was that, which is uh, combine the right signature strengths. So again, no offense, Charles, we need unicorns, but you can actually. <laughs> We actually can build a, a unicorn team, uh, really with that specialization, right? And you would always come out, come out much more uh, powerful as a, as a team. So that's on the people's side, right? And just continuing the the line of thought there, uh, the process. So people process technology, right? And and again, I'm purposely taking the emphasis away from technology because the the real problem is not necessarily always technology. Yes, if you're using outdated homegrown tools, you know, that's where you, you need to modernize, right? But that's really just a piece of the puzzle, uh, so to speak. So on the process side, you know, one of the biggest aspects that that can kill a project is lack of change management, right? And I have seen this so many times in my career, which is, you know, you magically discover the data, you have the data sets, you have built the model, you have deployed them. But you did not pay attention on how is that data pipeline actually being run and managed, right? So more often than than not, right, the team that is generating that data set, they are not aware of the downstream consumers. So one fine day, someone says, hmm, this column, maybe we could reuse, we can overload this attribute with some other semantic to it, right? And guess what? You know, they, they will go ahead and make a change unilaterally and downstream. And these are the most difficult problems to debug because, because it's like a silent error, right? Mm-hmm. There's nothing out there that can, that can tell you what went wrong. So it's like right. truly a needle, needle in the haystack. So the pet pee on the process side, there are many aspects here, but really that governance. And, and again, speaking of governance, not just, you know, the change management, but another key aspect, which I take very seriously is the whole aspect of privacy and and bias, right? And, and again, there are a lot of lot of examples of you know how models can get bias. I'm sure you, you guys have uh, seen some of that. So this is the kind of thinking that has to be put in right from day one, because retrofitting it later on, once you have the model or once you have in production, it's extremely difficult, if not impossible. Uh, the That's only time I've seen machine people. learning either, by the way, you know, yeah. you, something changes out from under you, the meaning changes, the the usage changes. And then it's like, this isn't behaving the way we thought. What is going on? I mean, you know, I'm primarily web development. You just look at it and you're like, you're going, I, I don't get it, right? And so you trace it all back. Okay, this is where the code changed. Why did it change here? And yeah, somebody changed the assumptions and moved the ball. And then you're going, oh, yeah, it's not unique to machine learning. Oh, yeah, totally. the, only, the only time I've seen that foundational change happen after bad practices have been in place for a while is if you're you're actually putting the the business's revenue on the line and i've seen ml use cases that were not developed in the most serious of ways but they were actually being consumed in very serious ways like a front end development team consuming predictions from the ml team that's driving an app experience or driving a, a major part of the sales pipeline on a website and it looks like frankenstein's monster uh, when you look at the ML infrastructure and code, and there's no quality controls. The funniest one that I've ever seen was an entire service that was being done by an ML team that completely blew up. They didn't know how bad it was until over three weeks after the change had happened. And it was it was standardizing on 
moving away from Fahrenheit scaling to go to Celsius scaling. And they didn't realize that that was the most important attribute that the model was using for determining demand for like inventory management and an autonomous system that a front-end engineer actually found because they were actually ingesting this data and building a visualization for it. They were like, hey, something's really wrong here. Like it's, it's calling for us to just make all of these orders. Luckily, they caught it in time, but it exposed this massive problem that they had where nobody was controlling anything. And it was funny, Charles, your counterpart at that company was like, see, this is why we use Swagger. We have de- definitions. We have, we have controls. <laughs> yep, we know. Okay. And the definitions are so critical, right? But, you know, it's actually a really difficult problem as well, which is, and again, going back to the, the schema on read in play, right? While dumping the data or collecting the data, you know, the, the mindset is, let's put it here. We don't know if we can, if this is going to be useful or we will use it, but let's put it in the lake, right? This is where the swamp and lake kind of is a, is the, the borderline distinction, right? Too much of data that is put in without, without real understanding and use is equal to a swamp at that point. And, and honestly, today, whose responsibility it is, right? So while writing data in the lake, there are multiple different personas involved, right? One is the application owner the people generating that data, right? Second is the data engineering team that have built the pipelines, right? So the ETL, ELT, how, whichever flavor you like to talk, or even like, you know, just pure events, right? So that's that team, which is taking the data, putting it into the lake, right? And then you have the third persona, which is the persona of consumers, analysts, data scientists, AI engineers, now, the person who knows or the persona that knows most about the data is the first one, which is the application engineer, because it's really the context. They know exactly why they are collecting what they're collecting the data for. And, you know, one of the aspects uh, I like to call there is they know the biased context, right? That is the data. Like, you know, a common example is in one of the projects, we were only collecting data for iPhone users, right? Mm-hmm. We, and, and the context was we didn't care. We, we, we were doing something specific just for iPhone, right? And it had all the right attributes. So downstream uh, later on, a data scientist looking at that data set, you know, found a match to something they were trying to build. But what they did not realize is that that entire data set was... Only iPhone users, right? And that context is not captured anywhere, essentially. So, like, of course, the model uh, was biased because the model always predicted, the model never really saw any other data. It never saw Android. It never, never really saw any other activity, so to speak. Mm-hmm. So it's really that aspect, which is in these three personas, like who's responsible or who should do it, who does it, and how do you really sort of incentivize, right? More of what I like to talk about is data exchanges, right? Like create, create just, just the way we have, we exchange goods, right? There should be data sets within, within companies where you know, there's a clear owner and there's an incentivized model to actually document and have your data set uh, being used the most, right? Because in, in some sense, that will basically be the motivation to document Every aspect of it, right? Uh, really make sure that if a user has a query, uh, if a user downstream wants to understand more, today those guys don't get the time of day. 
you know, because it's like, okay, I'm the application user that, you know, go away. <laughs> I don't care about <laughs> what you're trying to accomplish downstream. So some some of those aspects, and again, these are far away from tool problems. It is really uh, like the combination of the right set of people, uh, obviously starting with data right. Uh, and the, the key model there really is also thinking beyond, uh, you know, the traditional approach of, like, you know, again, when you think of structured, semi-structured and unstructured, right? Is there is there some way you can represent things as events, right? Uh, because if if your data is an event, a business level event, it kind of naturally is self-documented with the right context. So depending upon how innovative you want to be as a, as a team. But these are the guts of the problems that need to be addressed. Hey folks, it's Charles Maxwood, and I just wanted to jump in here and let you know about something that I'm doing. It's free. It's out there just to help you get answers to your questions about the things that you're running into with your career. So if you have questions about how to get further ahead in your career, how to start a podcast, how to get a better job, how to get a raise, how to deal with a situation at work with your boss, or just maybe you're stuck and you don't know where to go next. You know, how do I get from junior to senior, senior to whatever's next? How do I become a speaker? How do I get to the next level? That's what I'm out here to do. So every Wednesday at 12 o'clock mountain time, I'm going to be doing a call and it's going to be free, totally free. Go to devchat.tv slash level up and you can register for the call. It's using Zoom's webinar software. So it's pretty straightforward. And what we're going to be doing is I'll do 10 minutes and I'll just show you how I do some form of how I level up. And then we'll just answer questions. And it's not going to be a question and answer like, hey, what's your favorite flavor of ice cream? And then I say Rocky Road or whatever, right? Instead, what we're looking for is more along the lines of, yeah, I have the situation how do I handle it? I'm trying to figure this thing out. How do I figure it out? I'm trying to stay current. How do I stay current? And if you have any of those kinds of questions, I'll bring you on the call. We'll ask some deeper questions. We'll make sure we get you a solid answer. And I'm really looking forward to helping some people out. There will be no sales, no selling, no nothing on these calls. It is literally just 10 minutes of training and then Q&A. So you can go check it out at devchat.tv slash level up. Yeah. And one of the things that I always recommend to any team that I start interacting with, with a project is I, I tell them, hey, set aside a week of your time for this project that your only thing that you're going to do during that week is interviews. You're going to go talk to whoever, like follow that path up to the source, wherever that, that spring of data is coming from the ground. Is that a, a front-end developer who has written the code that is actually generating this? Or is it somebody doing manual data entry that you're ingesting from an ETL process? Go talk to those people, set aside some meetings with them and ex have them either walk through the conceptual idea of how they generate that data. Or if you really want to excite them, if they're a developer, say, hey, could you show me in your source code? Just explain to me how it gets generated. And I would just want to learn how that is. And you can get some nuances to that data from those discussions. Because Charles, you love talking about your JavaScript code with, with data scientists, right? I mean, if somebody comes up and asks you, you're going to be like, yeah, I'll explain this to you, sure. Yeah, I mean, the thing is, is that, yeah, it, I, I like talking about what I do, but it, it's more than just that. It's also, hey, look, if you understand what I'm doing and I can understand what you're doing, then both of our jobs get a whole lot easier. 
And so if I can spend a half hour or an hour or two hours or three hours getting this synergy going, and you know, in my current position, right, we're collecting data that, that gets munged into a report. It's not a, at the ML level, but you know, understanding their process for looking at the data and QAing the data and working through the data and, and everything that we're working with there. We've done all that, right? As we've kind of refined different processes because we're actually porting it from one system to another. And so we have to understand it to move it. And so being able to have them explain their process to us, having us be able to explain, hey, look, this is what we can do for you here, right? What if we added this? What if we added that? No, we don't need that. This is really important. Hey, that thing would be really nice, you know? And so we can kind of get these synergistic ideas coming together that way. That, that's where the real power with those conversations comes in. Mm-hmm. And once you fully understand that source of where that data is coming from and how the people are generating it and, and put, eventually using it, depending on the application, mm-hmm. you could be ingesting data from the front end and then pushing it back to the front end in a REST API. And so yeah. that all parties are really geared up and understanding each other's worlds and helping each other out. Some of the best ideas I've gotten for ML solutions that back when I used to build them uh, were due to talking with front-end developers saying like, hey, you know the customers and how the app works. Let's sit down for like a couple of weeks and just work together. Let's pair a program. Mm-hmm. I, I want to learn. That's how I learned how I air quote learned JavaScript was by sitting next to front-end <laughs> developers and just watching them work. I'm like, wow, that's some interesting syntax. Cool. And then they're like, show me how you do the ML stuff. But we yeah. shared information about that. And that, that I think, is a fundamental process that a lot of data science groups don't do, but I always recommend that they do, is yeah. learn your data and, and make friends. Well, and yeah, just, just down to that, it really does, it, at least in, in my case, you know, where I'm working now, it's really opened up a lot of things because it's, oh, well, it'd be way easier if you could just do this, right? And some of it's UI that they use that we build. And some of it is, hey, if we collected this data this way, that then mm-hmm. the then stuff's more accurate. You know, we get a better report, we get a better product, we get a better outcome. Totally. And one one of those aspects which both of you brought up, right, is really spending time, right? And the, the way I characterize that is, you know, firstly based on the ML ML project or the ML model. Right. See, all not all models, uh, or not all models, have the same. I would say operational complexity. So the way I like to break down an ML project early on is a two by two matrix, right? Which is, is is it an online or an offline model, right? And is the training online and off or offline, right? So that basically gives you the permutations, right? In terms of uh, what you're really trying to build. You know, if this is an offline model with offline training, it's a completely different world than an online model with online training, right? Yeah. And and this is this structure helps you define how much upfront investment and the time spent, as Ben was calling out, it's really a function of function of where you are in this in this matrix. Um, because yeah, if you are trying to do any kind of online training, right, or continuous retraining, you better make sure that the model, the data being fed in, not just that you know it's a reliable pipeline, but th- there is there are validations built in for quality, right? You 
you do not do not really want the kind of drifts like you know that that can potentially come in and again it really depends on what the model does but the more used model or something which is more critical for the for the business the more important it is to do this due diligence so in in fact it wouldn't even cross phase 1 of the project milestones if it's an online retraining model and we don't really have the code and code the friends um, ben yeah. was mentioning right the depth depth of understanding and from an infrastructure standpoint that online online that even gets broken out into two parts you, you know you have a po- passive retraining system that you would set with a cron trigger say hey champion challenger let's see if i can do better than what is currently pushed to production and running in a container somewhere but then i've seen active retraining systems which are doing online real time drift monitoring and saying trying to detect concept drift that's happening i've seen them at large financial institutions where they have online systems that are doing fraud detection or intrusion detection like people that are trying to attack their network and they have ai air quotes that is just checking to make sure are we detecting this correctly and whenever it starts getting dipping below a, a certain level of prediction accuracy it'll asynchronously kick off a new retraining with this new feature data but i've i've seen you know small companies where there's two data scientists and a data engineer and a half time software engineer that's supporting that team come to to me and say hey we'd like to build this could could you help like with what army are you going to maintain the system this is very very complex there's a lot of stuff that you have to build there's no open source package that does all of this for you you have to write that 250,000 lines of code to support this this infrastructure so maybe let's rethink this project let's do something that is offline offline first get some quick wins for your company and solve some of that low hanging fruit in a way that's not going to break the bank yeah being being realistic and grounded that that's the key but this is also one area where like you know going back to the tools right let's take an example of tensorflow extended right if you think about the democratization that is when i think about the entire pipeline and all the building blocks required or pretty much in the cloud you have vertex ai for google you have sagemaker in the in the aws world uh, azure studio in the microsoft world they're really sort of trying to like the ultimate goal is that right which is how do you minimize and get closer to the low code or no code right which is even when it comes to the model training right i, I remember early on like feature engineering was pretty much the the biggest time consuming aspect it, it still is you still need to spend time feature engineering but then when it comes to the aspects of you know hyper parameter tuning really the model architecture selection this is where auto ml um, has come a long way all the advancements that we have done in meta learning for instance there so i would basically say you know the ultimate goal would be you know two to two and a half person team uh, driving big things we are necessarily not there yet and a lot really depends on the data and the problem they're trying to solve right this whole online offline data quality pipeline robustness if some of those are in place they can pull it off but mostly you know those those tend to be the the tripping points yeah and having just enough time and budget that becomes a real problem for smaller companies with smaller teams is that thing that a lot of data scientists never really think about but it's all that a business thinks about 
It's what people in your position think about, which is what is the ROI here? If I'm gonna if I'm gonna approve budget to develop this solution and it's gonna cost me eight hundred grand in two quarters to build this, is this gonna make my company eight hundred thousand dollars at least? Can I even break even? And that's what really something that you mentioned earlier really resonates with me. And it's something that I always try to tell teams when they want to try greenfield projects, which is start as simple as you possibly can, even if that means you're just building a heuristics model, which is just case statements in SQL. Keep it as simple as possible to try to at least get an attempt to do some intelligent design on top of a decision that you want to make. Or if it's a regression problem, just build a simple linear fit. You can do it in an afternoon algorithmically. Get it as simple as possible and then test it. You don't have to test it on 80% of your customers. Test it on 5%, run it for three weeks, collect some data, see what it actually looks like. And then that can tell you, oh, there's a potential here and we can invest. And this is important. Or it can say, wow, there's no difference. Let's move on to something else. And that fast answer, I think, is, is incredibly important for any team to get to as quickly as possible. Couldn't, couldn't agree more, Ben. In fact, the mantra is really uh, how to fail fast, right? Mm-hmm. And, and really sort of checkmark these milestones that, that you need to accomplish. In fact, it, you know, that aspect of impact brings up an interesting example uh, just to sort of drive it home. You know, sometime back, we were basically looking at building customer churn prediction, right? In terms of really understanding what customers or which customers were at risk, right? And there was a lot of energy we spent in going what I refer to as a journey from data to insights, right? Which is how do you build a model that predicts that this customer is going to churn, right? Now, guess what? We did a pretty good job in building that model. What we missed out is the last leg, which is how do we go from that insight to impact, right? Who is looking at that? Who is using the prediction? Like, like you know, and again, this was more a retrofit, but that is now a pattern, you know, that I apply everywhere, which is, you know, you have to work with the consumer, the support agent that is receiving the call needs to see that prediction needs to see it on their screen so they can in real time make adjustments you know make offers make uh, provide discounts whatever is required right and that last mile really is the most difficult mile oftentimes like how do you like you know not just bring it to them but then you need to pred- you need to train how to understand the prediction right if your prediction is too complicated right or you're throwing out terms which they have no understanding Right? How do you get it down to a simple, like, you know, churn risk, high, low, medium, or a model that can be interpreted easily in real time? I think that is the, I would say, you know, going, going back, the value of the investment. And the sooner you can complete that cycle, this is really the lean model applied in the AI ML world. Like, you know, if you spend way too much time just in the early phases, you pretty much have lost the budget or exhausted the budget three times over you know, that you have really nothing you could be doing when it comes to the, the getting the impact implemented, steaded, mapped it in terms of whether this is useful. So that going through the cycle as quickly as possible, right? You know, really, I would say bubblegum and duct tape because the end-to-end 
is more important than any individual piece in the entire flow. I wonder if it's something about churn models that I, I have seen this sort of pattern so many times. I've done it once before where you create this like, hey, we can predict churn with like 97% accuracy based on holdout validation that we've done in post hoc analysis. And the business is like, yeah, like marketing is like, cool, great. What do you want us to do with this data? Like, yeah, it's in the table, but we're not going to query this table (laughs) for every time we have a question. Like, yeah, cool science project, dude. Which forces some sort of application. We're like, oh, well, let's create thresholds. And let's say, hey, anybody who is high value and has a high risk of churn over the next two weeks, let's send a custom email to them and give them a discount code or something. That's it. That last mile use case. Convincing the business to do that after you've already built something. Some people, some data scientists and myself, my historic self, I was like, I have to prove to the business that I can perfectly solve this before I can even talk about a use case. And I, I learned my lesson on that like very early in my career. And I tell that story to a lot of people of saying, hey, don't be like me. I was dumb. I talk to the business first, but explain to them that this may not work. Let's test it out together and see if we have a use case here. But yeah, I've seen other other stuff with churn models that are very similar. The craziest one I saw was somebody doing cohort analysis of, of churn across all users. And they, they sent to the customer service department on a web app. So they involved like front end engineers as well to build this web app that showed the, the data from the, like the raw predictions. But they aggregated it based on the cohorts and they sent a rock curve with a, a draggable slider. And it would give you like this, basically an intersection point. And I just asked, like, are you expecting a customer service representative to do like integral calculus in their head to determine what to do based on this data? And they're like, well, this is what we generated and what we use. I'm like, yeah, like collectively, there's there's 32 years of postdoc research in this group with all of you people. You understand this. These people will not. Let's simplify this. Let's give them a color-coded green, yellow, orange, red. That And one of those colors will pop up for the person that they're about to talk to. Red means you need to make this person happy because they're high value and high risk of churn. And yeah, that last mile, th- that is why I tell people, make sure you've got a good either product manager or project manager that comes from a technical background working on these projects or a data scientist who is exactly i've by the way i have read that blog that you wrote about building the unicorn teams but that one role that you specify in there which is that sort of business focused data scientist somebody who that's how they think like hey i'm here to solve problems they don't need to be a specialist in algorithms or in data manipulation they don't need to know how to do ci cd and ml ops pipeline stuff but they specialize in talking to other humans and figuring stuff out. So true. I'm pretty good at math. I want the color-coded one. Oh, so do I. (laughs) (laughs) Simplicity is key. Bug him. Yeah, exactly. You know, actually, folks, the the last mile is so important. In fact, these days, the way I ask the teams to approach any problem, right, is start with the end, right? So like going back to the churn prediction model, I would not invest like, you know, anything till until like prove to me that, okay, let's assume that we are able to predict customers that are going to churn, right? 
And let's just sort of see, you know, what what levers we have, right? In the sense that, okay, if we send them an email, do they even open that email? Or, you know, mm-hmm. if you are going to have a support specialist call them, do they even pick up the call, right? Unless we have proven the levers, you know, and I, I refer to this as, you know, the hand behind the curtain model, which is don't really build the whole thing. Assume the whole thing exists, right? Use manually predict or manually figure out that, okay, this is what these are the customers that are about to churn. And then prove to me that you really have the levers to make the impact. Because guess what? Like if there is really nothing, unless we solve that part of the problem, we're not actually going to build the real thing. So that, that's my strategy these days, which is starting from impact, going all the way back, which is, uh, which is very different from uh, me in my few years back, which is you, you would really start laser focused on the problem definition and really sort of try to build it out before, like, and again, build it out in a lean model, but mm-hmm. it's brutal. You just prove out the impact first, then we'll build the model. What's really fun for me, or my favorite type of data science work, or favorite type of model, is when that initial hack that you do, which is sometimes incredibly simple analytics, it could just be like a group by aggregation statement to generate data. Yeah. Yeah. When that solves the problem and the business is over the moon about it, and they're like, this is amazing. Is this in production now? You're like, it can be tomorrow. That's the best sort of win, in my opinion, for data science, because you're solving a problem and you just created something that anybody, even an intern, can come and within a day be able to support that in production because it's just, does the query execute? Yes or no. If it doesn't, it's really quick to diagnose it. And explainability is, here's a representation of our decision tree, and it's just a couple of boxes explaining how it does it. That's the best of all worlds, in my opinion, when you can solve problems like that. Yep. It's rare, no. but it does happen. Yeah. We're getting to the point where we need to start wrapping up. Is there anything else that we want to make sure that we cover before we do that? Do you mean in terms of uh, topics, Charles? Yeah, just topics or follow-ons, anything we've already talked about. I, I think, you know, this is all good. Obviously, beyond data selection, we went into the ML side. So I think that was good. We touched on some of the team aspects as well. Yeah, I, I think we are, we, we, this was a fantastic conversation. It kind of took its own twists and turns. Uh, All right. Well, let's go ahead and do some picks then. Hey, folks, if you love this podcast and would like to support the show, or if you wish you could listen without the sponsorship messages, then you're in luck. We're setting up new premium podcast feeds where you can get all of the episodes released after Christmas 2020 without the ads. Signing up will help us pay for editing and production, and you can go sign up at devchat.tv slash premium. Ben, do you have some picks for us? Yeah, since Sandeep didn't promote it, I'm going to promote it. The self-service data roadmap in a Riley book that he wrote really covers some of the topics that we've been we've been discussing and gives that perspective from a seasoned CDO about how how do you create your data infrastructure and how do you make things successful for a company that is moving towards being a data-driven organization. That and we touched on a little bit in the in the chat today about anybody who's trying to build a team or wants to get serious in in ML, but maybe doesn't want to spend four or five years at a fang company and you're just trying to build something at a startup, like how do I get data science off the ground correctly? Definitely take a look at that blog post that talks about the unicorn team. I've seen it play out everywhere that I've seen successful ML is not trying to look for that one person who knows it all 
but saying, how do I identify all the critical components that my team needs to do and source those people, but make sure that we don't have any of those people as, what was it? How did you call it? And that it's like a jerk genius or a genius that like knows it all, but can't work with people. <laughs> yeah. You don't want a brilliant jerk in any of those roles. And sometimes unicorns can be that unless you're you, Charles, but it's a great I'm a unicorn that post. way too. <laughs> yeah. I call him yeah. the torture, the torture genius. Yes. Oh yeah. And it's funny. You work in, in uh, tech for long enough and you'll wind up working with somebody that's just it's like, you know what? I want to talk to him because I'll get my answer and I'll learn something and I don't want to talk to him because they'll make me feel like a complete idiot <laughs> and they'll yeah. do it on purpose. Yeah, it's like they have something to prove, but yeah, I found that anybody that behaves that way just to be to show that they're superior are doing that to, mm-hmm. to protect their own fragile ego because anybody yeah. who actually knows what they're doing wants to help others. Yeah, well, it's it's funny, and I'm just going to pile on this for a second, and then I'll do my picks. Because, and I've told, the, I've talked about this before, but I have a brother that just finished his computer science degree from Western Governors University, and I have another cousin that he got most of the way through a computer science degree at Brigham Young University, which is just up the road, before taking a full time job somewhere. Because two kids and a wife and school—that's a lot. <laughs> but anyway, they both asked me at one point. They're like, "So, what's the most important thing you know that I'm going to learn that's going to help me in my development career?" I said, "Well." you kind of have to have the baseline coding skills, right? And you have to be able to pick up new stuff. They said, but honestly, the biggest thing is you have to be able to work with other people. And they're like, they, they looked at me and they were like, really? And I was like, yeah, I was like, any more software development's a team sport. And if you can't do it on a team, they don't want you and they don't care how good you are. Exactly. And the teams that haven't figured out that out yet, they just haven't hired that, what did you call it? Torture genius? They haven't hired that person yet and suffered through it. Totally. <laughs> Totally. And, and, you know, the most important thing within the team is mutual respect, right? If someone thinks that they are way above everyone else, no matter how good they are, you know, that, that's a disaster. You will never realize the overall, because, because it's like your goal is the productivity of the overall team, not an individual. And uh, yeah, that's my pet peeve there. Yeah. I will admit, though, I do like looking smart. So sometimes it's hard for me not to do it, right? Yeah, but you also teach people all the time. Yeah, I... I try. <laughs> I mean, you run a pretty big podcast network, so. Fair. Yeah. Anyway, so I'm going to throw out some picks. The first one is, I just want to remind people, I think I picked this last week. I'm doing a weekly Q&A slash uh, training call. Looks like it's going to be on Wednesdays at noon mountain time. And so, yeah, if you've got a question or a situation that you're trying to figure out, go to devchat.tv slash level up, and it'll take you to where you can register for the, the webinar software. But yeah, honestly, it's just going to be coaching and training. Uh, no sales pitches, no selling anything. Honestly, it's just going to be me trying to help people out. So bring your questions. Where do I go next? How do I level up? How do I move ahead? If it's a technical question, I'll try and answer it if I know the answer and help you find the answer if I don't. But I really want to just help people move forward. And and that's kind of a big part of where we're heading with devchat.tv. Uh, and expect to see changes on devchat.tv here within the next... Honestly, within the next few weeks, we're moving pretty fast on some of this stuff. Beyond that, so the last three days, I've actually been down at a camp with my son. So the church uh, took all the boys aged uh, 11 to 18 camping. And we went down to this Big Rock Candy Mountain Resort in southern Utah. It's in southwestern Utah. 
So if, if you're thinking like Arches National Park, if you go basically due west from there through all of the nothing that's down in southern Utah, in the middle of that nothing, there's this fun little resort. And we did a ropes course. We did zip lines. We were supposed to go whitewater rafting, but the river was too low for us to safely do it. So they canceled that and made us pick something else. But honestly, we had a good, good time. And honestly, it was funny because uh, there were two highlights for me. One was that I got to hang out with my son and with you know a bunch of the other kids that live in my neighborhood and just get to know them. And boy, you you want some uh, perspective on life, you know, talk to some of these kids and kind of figure out what they're going through. Because some of these guys, some of these kids had just gone through some some really horrendous stuff. And some of them had kind of gone through the sheltered childhood that I kind of had, as far as you know, things generally went well for me. But the other thing that came out of it was that was really nice was there was no cell service. We were up this canyon, there was no cell service. I, I didn't I didn't get bothered by anything or anyone, you know, I just got to sit and be with people. And then if I wanted to go be with myself, I go be with myself. And it was, it was really, really nice. And so it just kind of quieted all of the noise from the, the politics or the news or the other crap that's out there in the world. And it was nice just to kind of get that perspective too. You know, life goes on without all of that stuff. And so if you have a chance to get away and you have a chance to get away somewhere where there's no cell service and you can do it with some people that you want to get to know better. That's kind of a bonus or just by yourself. If that's what you need, go do it. Just, just get some escape, turn it all off. Trust me. It'll all be there when you come back and the, the politicians will still be idiots and the, the news will still be what it is. And you'll come back to the same world you left. So anyway, it was really, really kind of uh, relaxing and somewhat, I guess, mentally healing for me just to kind of turn all that off and not worry about it. So I'm going to pick that. Sandeep, what are your picks? I did not prepare any picks as per se. G- give me a moment to think about this. I would basically say, um, and, and my picks here, are we looking at specific events or uh, books or like typically books, is there movies, a TV shows, technology, anything, anything. you want? Quite, quite a few things. Actually, yeah, one of the examples, uh, like, you know, we had gone, since we are, I, I cannot think of anything in other buckets. I'll just think, pick on the kind of topic you were talking about, Charles, is, you know, we had gone hiking to um, Castle Rock. Castle Rock here is in, in California. And, you know, this is, again, a similar similar kind of uh, experience where uh, the idea was, I, again, went with my son and my daughter, right? And uh, it was one of those where, you really get to get to spend time and uh, tune out of um, all the other other distractions that typically come along the way. So I would basically say, you know, as you were talking about your experience, the, the top thing in my mind was really that, you know, this was fairly recent. This is something that you just uh, did a month back. So I could all I could I couldn't just stop thinking about that uh, exercise or that that event. On the technology side, my topics really is. Um, all the stuff that's happening in, you know, um, firstly, two, two picks, uh, if I were to make a call, right? One is the amazing progress we are making uh, when it comes to um, things like GPT-3, um, you know, the, the, the things that we are kind of advancing in sequence to sequence learning, right? And which is we sort of getting into, in fact, there was this uh, recent thing on Codex, which is, you know, a model that can actually write the program for you. So you specify things in simple English, the model trained on Wikipedia. Um, this is again an open AI uh, offering, for instance. 
what this basically tells me is that we are or really excited to see the whole evolution of low code, no code moving forward, right? People um, giving people the ability to build, express uh, without really having to go through, I would say, you know, the things that stop us. So I think that's one one key thing I'm super excited about, like everything that we have, like you know, the way these models are are improving and changing. And the other dimension really is the advancements in the cloud, the democratization that anyone can spin up any model, any amount of data, pay as you go, really sort of making it super easy for for even even high schoolers and and kids these days. Just looking at some of the projects, my son was participating in one of these AI projects related with AI, and just amazing to see you know people like high schoolers and really middle schoolers building out prediction models for heart disease prediction models to 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 better um, sort of allocate like or use of water uh, things like that so re- really excited by you know how how things are progressing and what the world will look like uh, with some of these things which it uh, seem to be emerging in front of us long people, long long winded way <laughs> letting people yeah. focus on doing what humans are really good at creatively solving problems instead of mechanically writing code. I agree. Totally. And we are getting there. It's it's not a fiction movie. Like, you know, it, especially like, you know, some of the major improvements, like, you know, the transformer model really has opened up the door. I love the best made over the last year or so in the AIML space. Um, having been in this space for like really long time from my PhD to PhD days, it's, it's super exciting how quickly we are, now able to move not just with new models, but again, what compute and data can do to really build out these humongous, humongous models. Like 20 years back, unimaginable to even even get like you know a teraflop <laughs> available. But it's it's just, we've come a long way. Yep. All right. So one last question: If people want to reach out to you and get more information, see what you're working on, you know, follow your journey from here. Where do they find you? Yeah, I'm actually most active on Medium. So if they look me up on Medium or if we can post a link to my my Medium homepage, um, that's the best way. Uh, I love to really share information. Uh, you know, part of what I like to do is really make sure that, you know, these lessons that we are learning, you know, as we build this out, sort of share them, make them available. I also have a nonprofit, dataforhumanity.org, where the whole intent is to actually help nonprofits leverage the value of data and AI. So in some sense, like definitely follow me on Medium. Love to also have people participate for, you know, if if you have the, uh, the bandwidth, if you have the time, if you have the skill and want to learn the skill, uh, want to encourage folks to to look it up, dataforhumanity.org. And yeah, we have lot, lots of different projects going on there. Sounds great. We'll put links to all of that in the show notes. If you can put links to those in the chat, that would really help us out. And we'll just wrap up here. All right, folks, till next time, Max out. All right, take it easy. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more.